Hello and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. I'm Will Stockdale here with Robert Hassler. We have been doing this podcast. We have been hosting this podcast for about the last uh, 11 weeks. And we normally like to start out with kind of a light, jovial manner, tossing around some jokes, seeing how the other person is doing. But in light of these recent events that have started in Minneapolis with the tragic death, homicide of George Floyd, the protests that have uh, in certain places and times turned into riots across the country, the, the pain that is felt in different communities, the confusion that is backed with the backdrop of a global pandemic that has shut things down, a skyrocketing um, unemployment rates, questions about reopening political division. With all of that and the intensity that we feel it only a couple miles from our home here in DC and that other people do, we just are, we're striking a more somber tone. And uh, I think striking a more somber tone because neither of us feels up to the task of talking to this, uh, feel, I think, profoundly unqualified to talk about this, uh, that this is beyond our pay grade in a very true sense. We also are aware, though, that it would be tone deaf and irresponsible not to bring this forward as we, we proclaim to be a podcast for ministry to state that talks about faith and culture, and this is certainly an issue where both of these have intersected in, uh, with broad highways. And so as we get in and we talk about these issues, Robert has an outline here that we're going to follow. But before we go, I just wanted to remind y'all who are listening what Ministry to State is and who we are and what we do. Uh, ministry to State is a ministry of the Presbyterian Church in America. We are a non-partisan, non-policy advocacy group, and we work very hard at that. We work hard not to advocate certain policies that are of one party or another, and we try to minister people on both sides of the aisle. Why? Because we are a pastoral ministry. We are interested in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and to proclaiming its transforming power um, to D.C. and the rest of the world. That power happened through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of his son and the promise of his coming back. Uh, we believe in the beautiful doctrines of justification, that we are made right with God. We believe in the definitive atonement, that we are pardoned perfectly and completely from our sins, that in sanctification, we believe in human flourishing, that God is working to make all things new, and that he is calling us to be a part of that, both individually and corporately on both sides, and neither one to the exclusion of the other. But we also don't believe that this is a partisan or policy issue. This is an issue about the image of God. This is the issue about justice. This is an issue about human flourishing. We believe that it's true that Black Lives Matter, that that is not a radical or uh, wild or weird thing to say. We believe that God has made all humanity in his image uh, in the image of ma male and female he has created them. We believe, uh, as I said, in human flourishing and that the burning and destruction of property is profoundly unbiblical. And we also believe that we need to care for those who are hurting and in pain and to listen to that pain and to understand where people are coming from. And so I think with this, um, background. I want to go ahead and get in and just start talking about this. And so 
Robert, I want to toss it over to you, uh, get your first thoughts and then the first kind of inroad to this conversation. Yeah, um, I'm thinking a lot right now of one of the things that my professor uh, at Covenant Seminary says a lot, which is that the Bible is neither a social nor a political book, but it has profound social and political implications. Um, And so one of the tasks of being a Christian is figuring out what those implications are and how do we apply the tr- the eternal truths of God's word uh, to the ever-changing cultural context that we find ourselves in. One thing, I've, I, in sort of preparing for this, this episode, uh, I've been re- returning to a, a book that I really, really enjoy uh, called Heal Us Emmanuel uh, that was compiled by a bunch of folks from the PCA to speak into issues of racial reconciliation, representation, and unity uh, in the church. And uh, one of the essays in there is by a guy named Timothy LaCroix. And he has a really great essay sort of about the shaping power of narratives by mass media and our own political biases. And I think that that is really an important thing to consider as we approach this topic. This issue, the issue of the homicide of George Floyd by the hands of police officers who were supposed to be protecting their community, the uh, issue of urban unrest being viewed through the lens of folks who don't live in cities, all with the backdrop of political divisions that include folks on the right and the left, all of that comes together in this story and it doesn't make for an easy thing to parse. It's going to be extremely challenging. There's a lot of difficult questions and we're going to have to allow for a lot of nuance and listening. And I think that that can be really tough uh, for folks, especially if you are in a DC context and you work in politics and sort of towing the party line, making sure that you are telling things through the, the narrative that you need, that you want to tell your constituents. All of those things tend to be things that we value Uh, very much in this context. And I I think for approaching this story, we need to sort of strip all of that away and really look at what's happening, who are the people affected, what is the pain and the suffering that they're feeling, and as as Christians, having the the obligation to empathize and listen. And I think that that's kind of the way we approach this this story today. Well, I was going to say, I think you're totally right. And in one stance, I think when people hear we need to listen and empathize, I think what frightens people falsely is this suggestion that maybe we have to give up on the true and what's right. And I think the answer is definitely no. Uh, We do need to listen and hear and change where we are wrong to make sure that we are on the true and the right side. But we also need to make sure that before we go into these conversations, we have searched our hearts and we have thought rationally and logically and carefully about what is true and what is right and what is good. Um, And only if we start this conversation by saying what scripture says is good and evil, then can we have a helpful dialogue. A big mistake here that people seem to be making is that to say, hey, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is evil, is to be divisive and to prevent conversation from happening. But if we know what is right, and in fact, I think when we truly hold to a biblical view of what is right and wrong, 
good and evil, we're able to have a much better, healthy, holistic conversation that allows us to empathize. One, because we're not making it up. It's a humble posture to receive scripturally what God has given us as good and true and right to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, both very hard people to love a lot of times, especially <laughs> us simultaneously. Or, you know, um, or we are misviewed or misunderstood or um, anyways, I think that's important to say and maybe to understand for people as we go forward. For sure. And I, I think you did a good job of, of reemphasizing that we are a pastoral ministry. We care about pastoring. We care about people, not policy. And so as we approach this issue, we want to approach it from a pastoral context. And so when I was thinking about this episode, I was really looking at it. So who are, who are the characters in this story? Um, and I, I think for the purposes of this conversation, it's important to focus on three characters. I think we want to look at the protesters. And when we say protesters, we are referring to the peaceful protesters. We want to talk about the rioters. And when we talk about rioters, we are talking about the most destructive elements of uh, these uh, events going across our country. We're talking about the arson, the violence, uh, whether that's attacking protesters or attacking cops. We're talking about destruction of property. And as, as you know, as you're mentioning violence, also what we're thinking is the tragic elements of further police violence. Correct. Yes. Wanton violence towards peaceful protesters or observers. Exactly. And what, what is a pastoral approach to these people? And then finally, I think we want to take a look at what is in a pastoral approach uh, to our political leaders and, and community leaders across the country. Um, I think we, we want to look at situations that are going on at the top of our country's leadership. Um, but then we also want to highlight uh, leadership that we've seen across the country on a local level, in a community level, um, that has been really uplifting and I think offers a lot of hope for us. I think a good, a good place to start is to looking at, you know, how do we have a, a, a pastoral response to the peaceful protesters? And I think the first and foremost thing that we would want to say is that we are in support wholeheartedly of the peaceful protesters across the country who are rightfully pointing out a horrible misuse of police power and a horrible case of injustice in the, in the homicide of George Floyd. Right. And I, I think in addition to that, as you mentioned, a response, we've seen powerful instances where, well, the, the protesters themselves has, have engaged in dialogue with each other, obviously. And then you also have police officers who have thoughtfully engaged with in a very peaceful way with these protesters to listen and hear them out. And I think um, as someone who is white, my response to the protesters is to hear and to listen and to sit with. And um, when people are hurting and, and people have legitimate pain in their hearts, it is a foolish time to argue. I mean, there, there is so little fruit that can come from those sort of things. And so it, not only is it, is it unkind, but it's just only going to lead to further distancing. And I think to be able to sit and wait and be patient, and it's very hard. I do not think it's easy, but to show love and compassion with people who are hurting by listening to them. For sure. Arguments legitimately. For sure. And I, th I think another element of this too is 
being able to recognize failures in the past, I think that that is a huge part of moving forward. And I think that this really hindered our own denomination for a long time in our uh, efforts for racial reconciliation. We had always been willing to stand up and condemn past racial injustice, specifically um, slavery and and issues of uh, surrounding the Civil War. Failure to speak into the atrocities of Jim Crow. Uh, but one thing I think that that really hindered our denomination for a long time was was not being able to repent of the sin of not doing anything positive and sitting out of a civil of the civil rights movement, predominantly led by churches and clergymen. And I think that that was an important first step when when the PCA publicly repented of that sin. Um, it opened a lot of doors to be able to have conversations and dialogue because there had been an acknowledgement on the part of the guilty party that they had done something wrong. I think that's one thing that really prevents a lot of conversations about this issue is that a lot of people in this country in, in 2020, they look around at a lot of these issues and they say, well, I'm not racist. I don't do any of these things that, that, that people are protesting about. I don't have any racial biases, but not being able to recognize um, that real pain and suffering has happened in this country and that there are points of systemic injustice in this country like police brutality, being able to recognize those things and say, look, hey, we hear you and we want to learn more. We want to hear more. And we also, in cases where we are guilty, we do want to repent and say we're sorry. And I think until we can overcome that hurdle, the way forward is just going to be a lot rockier and harder and longer. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of tough sledding in front of us. And on the one side, every pastor that I have seen has responded unequivocally that what happened to George Floyd was unjust and egregious. Uh, I can be very thankful for that. I'm limited on my social media interaction, so I don't dive into the depths. I haven't seen a lot. I'm sure there are people who are trying to to explain it away, and that's um, not good. But I am thankful to have seen at least the people in my denomination who have, our, our denomination, who have been very clear in the, the wrong that was done to him. I think like one thing for me it's, that's been really eye-opening in this, in this whole case is really opening my eyes to the concept and the idea of privilege in particular. Um, that's been something that I've really uh, wrestled with in the past and something I didn't want to talk about and address. And then, but being able to really look at, at this case, and we, we have to also remember, like the incident with George Floyd comes immediately after another horrible instance of injustice committed to Ahmed Arbery in, down in Georgia. Um, yeah, not to mention Amy Cooper and yes. Christian Cooper and Taylor and right. Ashley. Like just these things happen way too often. And until we recognize that there is a pattern going on here, I, I think it's going to be really hard for us to understand the real pain and suffering that's going on and to look for steps to, to move forward. That's just something that's been weighing on my heart a lot recently, thinking about, you know, what are the other cases of systemic injustice that are going on in this country? That's not just present in 
law enforcement and the just criminal justice system, but also in terms of higher education, in terms of um, economics and, and things like that, you know, really opening my eyes to these things and be willing to learn and listen. And, and like you said at the beginning, like for somebody listening, that does not mean necessarily that everything that you believe right now is going to be torn up and ripped to shreds. But what it is doing is it's, it's a constant realign yourself to what are the truths of scripture? What is, what is scripture saying about these issues? And being able to repent when you're wrong and willing to change, um, I think that that's sort of the position that I find myself in. A, a friend of mine was interviewed on a media, a television station, and um, he was asked if the, uh, the media was fanning the flames of racial hatred. And he's a very wise, brilliant man. And he said, there has to be something there for the fans to flame. And, and he went on to cite these statistics about the inequities towards the black community that have happened. And one of the things that he said was a greater level of unkindness towards blacks from police officers. And I don't say unkindness to make it minimal, but unkindness because kindness is a fruit of the spirit. And if, again, if we believe in human flourishing, why would kindness from cops be a bad thing? That seems like a wonderful thing for everybody to have kindness exhibited. We love kindness as kids. And then somewhere along the way, we act like that's just for kids, but we all want that and need that. So I think that's something, again, that for these protesters who are not acting, protesters, again, not writers, I think it's, it's clear, uh, they're, they're, we should be hoping for kindness to be exhibited all around to promote further flourishing. I don't want to, I was going to say dialogue. Part of me doesn't want to say dialogue because it seems almost bland and unhelpful. Um, but like true flourishing, which is also an overused word. Certainly. Yeah. It's, it's important to remember that, you know, in order for real substantial dialogue and communication, like there's going to have to be positive action steps that happen afterwards. Right. And so we're not talking necessarily just about you know, we sat down and talked and so now we understand each other's feelings, but really addressing uh, issues that we can in, in real uh, substantive ways, I think is important. I think now probably it's time to, to move on to, which is going to be a much harder, I think, thing to discuss, which is pastoral responses to rioters, to the folks that are inciting violence um, bo- on both sides, the cases of arson and destruction of property, being able to uh, speak to those elements and sort of, what do we say? What, what is the response to, to those actions? One thing that you've seen, I know we've talked about it, and I'm sure other people have seen is a meme going around of Jesus in the temple flipping tables. And even pastors who I'm tipping my hand here, who should know better, who said that Jesus uh, would have condoned riots because of his action in the temple. And that is profoundly wrong in a number of ways. It is a very poor reading of scripture. It is a, a false application of scripture. It is a misunderstanding of Jesus's mission and what he did. It's a false equivalency in the very fact that he said, this is my father's house. It treats his action as erratic and spontaneous rather than thoughtful and planned. When we read the Gospels, we see very clearly that Jesus made a deliberate attempt 
to the very center of Jerusalem and to be crucified outside of the city. Uh, his mission was deliberate. It was thought out. It was planned. He did not stumble into the temple and find out what happened and then get apoplectic and enraged and tear things up. No, it was, it was part of his plan. And furthermore, it wasn't just a riot. He wasn't just mad about people selling in the temple. His actions symbolized the destruction of the temple that was to happen in 70 AD. That is essential to understanding his actions. What is more, he put a stop to the sacrifices that were happening by flipping over the money changers and that which was selling. Again, consolidating the work of God around himself. It happened in the temple. He is the new temple. He is the final sacrifice. Those actions happened in the flow of redemptive history to symbolize the fulfillment of what he came to do. And I'm mostly just upset with the pastors who are using this falsely and and know better and yet think it's humorous or something. And I think it's very uh, unhelpful. My ears sort of go up when somebody says, here's this Bible story, here are these characters, you know, and then put us in the in place of the hero of the story. And so the, the most famous case of this in America, obviously, is the story of David and Goliath. And, and they say, look, we're David and we need to conquer our giants, right? And, you know, at best, we're the scared Israelites behind David, and at worst, we're the Philistines, right? So, uh, so in this case, in, in this story of cleansing the temple, I'm looking at, so, okay, who, you know, who am I? Where am I? You should be very, very hesitant to ever say, oh, I'm Jesus in this story. That's probably not where you belong. And so, again, I think it, it, at best, we're the crowd watching what's going on, confused. You know, what, what's he doing? Why is he doing this? And at worst, we're the money exchangers, right? We're the ones committing sacrilege in the temple of God. And so when I see people applying this story to justify, let's call them injustices against communities, um, small business owners and tenants and folks who live in these communities, because that's what this is, I think that's a really bad thing that, that, that doesn't serve the body of Christ. I think another interesting element of this that is always important to remember, especially when we read the account of cleansing the temple in Matthew, right? How does that story end? That story ends with Jesus healing folks. It it has a restorative element to it. It's not just Jesus flips the table and then leaves, right? There is reconciliation. There's restoration. Something uh, you reminded me of this earlier than you just said it, that when, after Jesus had cleansed the temple, he gathered all the people to himself and healed them, which was again symbolic of what he had come to do and of his mission on earth. And I want to say to people who want to use Jesus in this way, when was the last time you walked on water, turned water into wine? When was the last time you opened the eyes of the blind? And, and I want to say this also. I think, look, the reason you and I are upset about this is really has very little to do with the writing. It, it gets my ire up simply because it's a misuse of scripture and it's, it's showing little regard for it truly, which we'll get to later in a different instance. Oh yeah, yeah, we will. In a different way, but um, to, to use it incorrectly and flaunt it is just, is not good. Um, And, you know, I I really don't have that much to say about the pastoral response to the writing other than in the same way we want to side with the hurting. 
with those who are protesting and hurting. The same would be to those who have suffered at the hands of rioters. And many of these rioters, look, it's not the same group as the people protesting. Right. It is right. a different group of people. It's dark, like in, in an archetypal sense, like there's a, there's a wickedness going on here with these people. This video of this Mercedes full of white people handing bricks and this one woman who was just ticked at them for doing that. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with these people that they're, what are they trying to incite here? What's going on? So I don't have much to say about it other than um, to be consistent with the goals and hopes of human flourishing. The violent destruction through rioting is not a means to that. It's not a way for that to happen. With, same with anger. It may not be the best time to, to stop them in the moment, but to, you know, again, to, to make sure that the protests are supported and heard so that they feel strong to defend against these intruders who are coming in and causing conflict. Right. Yeah. And I, would, I just want to add, too, that this is all not to say that there is no case for righteous anger. Of course there is. It is okay and it is justified to be righteously angry at what happened to Mr. George Floyd. That is righteous anger. But it's important to remember that as fallen creatures, as folks who have only had the first tastes of restoration and await the final restoration to come, we have to be very careful about saying, I have this righteous anger about this incident. Therefore, everything that I do in response is going to be justified. We need to make sure that we are channeling our righteous anger in ways that glorify and serve our Lord. And so in the best cases, you see where this has happened, right? In places where really effective demonstrations have happened. That's where places where righteous anger has been channeled properly. And then in some of the worst cases, you see, you know, in some of the worst destruction and arson, you see, you know, when righteous anger is channeled poorly and how that doesn't serve, serve our Lord. And so um, that's, that's something I would like to, to tack on. And, and I think we'll kind of get into sort of where we've seen it well applied and poorly applied when we look at what's going on with the political leadership in this country and how they're responding to these uh, demonstrations. Should we go there now? I think we should go there now. I think it's a good time to, to discuss it. You know, you were, you were talking about how upset you get when God's holy scripture is misused and misapplied. I think we had probably one of the most egregious cases of that yesterday with the president himself really using the Bible as a political photo op. I just had to take my final Westminster Shorter Catechism exam to graduate seminary. And one of the question is, what does the third commandment forbid? And it uh, forbids the misuse or the abuse of anything by which God makes his name known. And I do not have issues saying that what happened there in front of St. John's Church was an example of the abuse of scripture and was using it as a political toy. Yeah, I mean, it was a clear violation of the third commandment. It's a big deal. It's very sad. It was very wrong. Yeah, I would echo everything that you just said. I found it extremely offensive as a Christian who believes that that is the holy and inspired word of of God. One way that I would say it is I really felt like my intelligence and my faith was sort of insulted Mm. by the whole matter. Mm. 
that somebody would be able to do that and not, not think that that would be offensive. And I think that also surrounded it was this, the words that came both before that fo- that photo op and then afterwards that to make that photo op possible that there was a massive escalation of violence on behalf of the law enforcement present at Lafayette Square and then the words afterwards which were promises of more military involvement of escalation um i just found it to, to me to be very offensive and sacrilegious and just reduced the Bible to something that can be used by whoever is in power for their own political purposes and not something that political leaders should be reading to, to guide as how to best serve and love their neighbors. And I I think that was what was most egregious to me when I watched the thing happen. I don't have much more to say about it other than the reality that it was like I said earlier, it was a clear violation. It was a, it was a misuse of scripture, which when scripture speaks, God speaks. And um, he speaks with a mighty voice and he speaks with a lot of power. And it is very dangerous to toy around with it and think that it can just be flaunted flippantly. Uh, it doesn't go well. No yeah, as, as a lot of pastors uh, that I saw uh, responding to it, you know, just very simply, God will not be mocked. And I think that that's important to remember as we watch uh, what President Trump decided to do uh, yesterday. But I don't really want to focus too much on a lot of the negative because there is a lot of... It's not in there. We'll end it apart. There have been some yeah. leadership in cities and then bad leadership photo ops, but... But there's been a lot of good examples of, I think, godly leadership that we want to highlight and talk about because as we've already sort of discussed about media and narratives, you know, there's, there's very much a concerted effort to sort of, I think, put the worst in front of people, the shock and awe. Um, but we also want to highlight the positive elements of the events, of things that we've seen that have been really inspiring a lot of hope, uh, hope for progress, hope for change. Um, and so one of the first uh, positive signs that I saw coming out of these whole events were the words and the leadership uh, that came out of the city of Atlanta. The words from the mayor from Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, just pleading for peace uh, in the spirit of MLK to uphold his legacy of nonviolence. And I think right alongside her, the words from Erica Shields, uh, the police commissioner, who was down on the scene, on the front lines, talking to protesters, empathizing with them, making sure that the protesters knew that she heard their pain and suffering and was feeling it too, um, that they had a voice and that, that she was there to listen to them. Um, I think that those were two really positive cases and and really encouraging to see coming out of the city of Atlanta. I didn't see the, um, I didn't see the police instance you mentioned. I did see the mayor of Atlanta and her speech and I thought it was very powerful I thought it was very emotional, but I don't say that in like, uh, it was just an emotional appeal, but it was full of heart. It was, it was very strong. Killer Mike, I think he may have been at the same press conference. Yeah, he was in Atlanta. I knew it was in Atlanta. I, I didn't know if it was the same one she spoke at. And, and I think he went before her because she referenced him or she references him. 
some friends and I were talking about how moving and wise and good. I'm glad he was there at that conference. And I'm glad that she was there as well and what she was able to say. I think the Killer Mike's speech, one thing that it did for me was sort of expose that this is not a very easy event to, to cipher. You know, you have the case of Killer Mike, who is very much on the side of the protesters and is uh, an activist and a community leader uh, within the black community against police brutality, right? And, you know, he talks in the thing that he's the son of a police, an Atlanta police officer. You know, people who are telling this story really want to make it very clear cut lines about sort of them versus, you know, us versus them. And when you realize, when you listen to real people on the ground, it's so much more complicated than that. Well, which makes me think it's even more important to understand the good versus the evil. Right. Because when you see good versus evil, it makes us versus them harder to maintain. For sure. The, the police case that you mentioned uh, that I was just really happy about was the um, story of Chris Swanson, who's a, who's a county sheriff up in Michigan uh, serving the community of Flint, to see a white sheriff go to the protest and address the community there. I think one thing that, that gets lost, he's not in any protective gear. Mm. He, he, he wants to meet them where they are, talk to them. He denounces what happens in, in Minneapolis. I think he spoke for a lot of police officers who also thought that what happened in Minneapolis was a tragedy and was injustice. Um, and so being able to communicate that effectively, being able to communicate, hey, this is how we're feeling on our side. And that in no way diminishes what you're feeling on your side. We want to come together with you on this. And then to be asked, sir, would you march with us? Mm. And to say, yes, I will march with you. Mm. I think really spoke to the crowd. And I think what it shows is, is the effectiveness of incarnational ministry, right? Of inserting yourself into those moments and being surrounded by it um, really shows to the people that, you know, I'm here with you. That was a really inspiring moment and, and something that uh, Christians should go and watch and, and try to learn from. I am glad we chose to end with these highlights of these mayors and police officers to look at them because uh, this is weighty and this is heavy uh, and this is burdensome, discouraging. There are so many words to describe this, but to be reminded that there are good leaders out there and that um, there are people who want the good and the human flourishing. And I have to ask, how, how do I want to be a part of that? How, how can I, participate, not just right now, but beyond, way beyond in this, and that it's not just a one-day decision, but it's it's the long obedience in the same direction. What do I need to examine in my heart? This is a great chance with all this upheaval to think way beyond race, uh, way beyond economics, to look, to dive to the depths and to see what all's going on in there, to ask the Holy Spirit to to search our hearts and know us. Good deal. Well, I'm very glad that we had this conversation. Uh, I know that it's something that has been weighing on the hearts of many as they uh, listen uh, and watch what's going on. Thank you, uh, listener, for tuning in to The Will and Rob Show. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at Artie Hassler and Stockdale Will. Um, If you like what you're hearing, Check out MTS's latest podcast, the Faithful Presence Podcast, 
with Reverend Michael Langer, uh, the Associate Director of, of Ministry to State in Washington, D.C. Uh, follow Ministry to State at Ministry to State and visit ministrytostate.org. Thanks again. We'll see you all next time.